0: exiting now and uh, uh, a qualifier up front I don't I've been praying about how to effectively communicate what God has shown me this past week in this chapter and I hope through the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit that you and I will walk away with a deeper understanding of the holiness of God and what that means to each one of us Revelation chapter 15 is the shortest book the I mean excuse me the, the shortest chapter in the book and just because it's the shortest chapter does not necessarily mean it doesn't have something important to say it reminds me, for example, of something happened long ago in this country. Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was a very brief speech, but he eloquently stated what he wanted to state, and now it's held up in history as one of the greatest speeches by a president in the history of this country. Many of you probably can quote it per vatum, at least how it starts. How the Gettysburg Address begin? Four score and seven years ago. See, look at that. He had a, something important to say, and he left an impression that will never be forgotten. Likewise, John, under the direction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had something important to say, and he does so in a brief manner. It emphasized the importance of what's going to happen in chapter 16 and following. Chapter 14 gave us a panoramic view about what's going to happen, what's going to take place, where this chapter takes a larger picture, but now it zeroes down into something to give us a more fuller view. The details of the judgment that are about to be poured out are, are being spelled out and enlarged upon, and the full wrath of God is going to be vividly put on display As he pours out his cup of wrath of his burning anger against sin. Look at verse 1. John begins, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, or awe-inspiring. Now the Greek word translated there, marvelous, emphasizes the quality of astonishment. What does John see? Look back in the verse. Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. Finished is the Greek word tilio. It means bring to conclusion. So what this means is that these bowls hold the culmination of the wrath of God. This is it. They're about to be out. Which brings us to another word that's interesting. Wrath. It's the Greek word themos. It means a passionate anger, a, a fury, if you will. Now the Greek word that's normally used to, to, to describe anger is orgezo. But themos is something totally out. So if I got angry at a driver, I would use that word, but this themos has a whole nother context to it, a whole nother thrust to it. And by the way, themos is only used eleven times in the New Testament. Ten of them appear in the book of Revelation. It's unmitigated, absolute, complete wrath or fury in the response to the injustice in the world. And that is the theme of the bowls of wrath in chapter 16. The extremities of conditions thus evoked seem to be the reason why John would use the word marvelous, astonishing, awe-inspiring to describe what he sees taking place before him. And then verse 2, it says, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed or mingled with fire. Now, this sea of glass has been viewed upon once before back in chapter 4, verse 6. However, this particular sea of glass in chapter 4, verse 6, was not described as being mixed with fire. And since fire often accompanies the judgment of God, here it may denote the just judgment of God. And look who's there with the sea of glass. Look back in verse 2. Those who have been victorious over the beast and his and his image. That Greek there for victorious is nekeo. It means overcomes or to be victorious. In fact, if you have the NIV this morning, you will see that. Be victorious is how they translate that. Now you have to remember that the majority of the earth's population in the final days of the tribulation submit or surrender to the two beasts that we read about back in chapter 13. Those who do not, other than the 144,000 Pay with their lives or are martyred for their faith. Now here they are. The text says standing on the sea of glass. And judgment and justice about to pour out on those who have been deceived by the two beasts. So these people that were killed are now going to see God's judgment and justice poured out. Now that standing on the sea of glass, there's a lot of speculation what that means. I'm not going to dive into all that, but I'll just simply tell you I don't see any explanation from the text other than the fact they were standing on the sea of glass and holding harps of God, as the New Living Translation puts it, harps that God had given them. So here's the picture. He sees these seven angels. He sees those who've overcome the beast and his statue and his number the ones who were killed that did not bow down and do what they wanted and now they're standing there as the bowls of wrath are about to be poured out and look what they do in verse 3 it says they sang the song of moses and the song of the lamb since the injury of the text includes the outpouring of the bowls of wrath delivery of the people from judgment the background seems to come from the exodus And what may be in view here is a historical song regarding the deliverance of Moses and the people of Israel. The song is sung as a prelude and an enactment of the greater deliverance to be effected with the Lamb and His victory. So we go back to the Exodus story. Now, although Old Testament abounds with analogies and pictures of redemption to come, nor historical event, metaphor, illustration, is more poignant than Exodus. Hopeless bondage gives way to miraculous deliverance, followed by a journey into the land of promise, and the experience of Moses foreshadows salvation in Christ. So what happened in the Passover? You had the seven plagues, right? And the last plague was what? The death angel. And what did they do? Take a lamb unblemished, and you slaughter it and smear the blood on the doorpost. And when the death angel saw that blood, he would pass over and not take the life of the firstborn. And then they're released from Egypt. In fact, so much so, that the Egyptians said, here, take it all. Take anything you want, just get out. And they leave. But then they come to the Red Sea. And they start complaining and grumbling. Why did you bring us out here, Moses, just to die? Then there was a pillar of fire that holds the Egyptians, and the Red Sea parted, and they crossed on dry ground. The fire went up, the Egyptians chased them, and all the Egyptian army was drowned as the sea Red Sea came back together. And where were they going? The Promised Land. That's so much as a picture pointing forward to the work of Christ. What does the work of Christ do for you? His blood. What does his blood do for you? It covers your sin. You're saved from the wrath of God. Where are you going? To the promised land heaven can you see it starts way back there in the Exodus story even further back with the promise of abraham the whole bible is one big meta narrative story that tells god working he makes man man rebels and god has a plan to restore man back by providing his son jesus christ but you can see that whole redemptive thread woven throughout the pages of scripture Now, back to our text here today, we're not told how many stanzas were sung. But it clearly began with the mighty acts of God in Egypt and concluded with still the more remarkable intervention of God in Christ. Now, the song that we have, at least the portion we have recorded for us, mentions neither Moses or the Lamb, per se. Therefore, it could be understood as one song that encompasses all the redemptive, Acts of God throughout history. Look what it says in verse 3. Great and marvelous, astonishing, awe-inspiring are your works or your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous or just and true are your ways, King of the nations, or King of the ages, or King of the saints. And before we get wrapped up what that really means, all of those are emphatically true. He is King of the nations, He is King of the ages, and He is King of the saints. You'll see different translations render that one of those three ways. And they keep on with the song in verse 4. It said, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify or bring glory to your name? Now, this is a rhetorical question. The thought of having somebody who won't fear God and bring glory to his name was unthinkable for them. How could someone be like that? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. Holy references, references purity and worth. God alone has this particular quality. All nations will come and worship before the almighty God. Because in all these transactions, his righteous acts have been manifest and have been revealed. Think of this for a second. When he reveals his righteous acts when he has his judgment no one questions god because they recognize that he's holy he's righteous he's just to do so even when the the wrath is being poured out but get ahead of myself in chapter 16 even when the wrath is poured out and they know who god is they still blaspheme god and will not repent some would say they gnaw their, on their tongues. Read ahead in chapter 16. Now, people say people live back in antiquity were rather barbarous to us today. They, people in antiquity were just like you and me. They had a sense of justice, a sense of judgment. But once again, The text clearly states that when the nations observe the righteous acts of God revealed in these plagues, all protests against him are effectively curtailed. Recognizing God is righteous in his acts of judgment, the nations will both fear God and bring glory to his name. Do you fear God? Do I fear God? And do I bring glory to his name? In verse 5, the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. That's considered the most holy place in the temple. And it's identified as a tabernacle. Look in the text, or the tent of the testimony. It's going back to the tabernacle, talking about the holy of holies. The place behind the veil. The Ark of the Covenant sat there. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, you had the tablets of the law. The Ten Commandments that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. You had Aaron's rod that had budded, and you had a jar of manna. Now, only once a year could that Holy of Holies place be entered into. It can only be entered in by the high the 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 priest. And the high priest had to make sure that he was pure before he entered that place. Because if he entered before God, in the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God himself, he would be struck dead if he was unworthy. Tradition says that they had bells on the end of their robes there. They could hear the bells ringing and they put a rope around his ankle. Because if he drops dead, I ain't going in after him. I'll pull him out because you go in there and the presence of the almighty, holy God and you're unclean, you'll be struck dead. And this once a year, you'll see on your calendar, is Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And he would go in in his prescribed way. He had to make all these uh, preparations for him to go in. And when he entered in, of all things, he'd carry a basin of blood from a sacrificial goat that he would then sprinkle on the mercy seat with his top of the ark to the covenant to cover for the sins of the people. So the testimony, bear with me, was a clear witness of the holiness of God and the unapproachableness of God, except on God's timetable and in God's prescribed way. Did you catch me? Hear what I just said. The testimony was a clear witness of the holiness of God and the unapproachableness of God, except on God's timetable and in God's prescribed way. You just couldn't walk in the Holy Holies and talk with God. And this is what I've been wrestling with all week. I take so much for granted that I go before God. Not stopping to realize or consider His holiness and the sacrifice of Christ that when I take those things for granted... Guilty of trampling over the precious blood of Christ. I couldn't go in there. I'm not even Jewish. I'm a Gentile. I couldn't make it inside the outside of the tabernacle. I'd be outside somewhere. The ark was God's communication of Himself and His purposes, the demands and promises for the people of God, which is the Ten Commandments, the tablets. Aaron's rod and manner witnessed the saving competency of God and his providential oversight of his people. And the location in which God gave witness to the people of his presence and power. Shekinah, glory, cloud, Shekinah cloud of glory. That first descended on the temple back in Exodus chapter 33 verse 9 and later descended upon the temple of Solomon. verse First Kings chapter 8 verse 10 that Shekinah cloud, we'll get to that in a moment, but it's it's the outward manifestation of the glory of God. It's so bright that you can't see anything. And you look in the text, it says, once His his glory, their smoke filled the temple. talking about this Shekinah glory, this manifest presence of the glory of God. It's so bright and so intense that you can't do anything. can't see anything. It's so bright. And that's the glory of our God. In verse 6, the seven angels... Look where they came from. Came out of the temple. They came from the presence of Almighty, Holy God. You have the holiness on one hand and the seven plagues on the other something we don't like to talk about very much. The holiness of God demands that sin is dealt with. So there is wrath, anger, because he's holy. He's bound by his very character. Yes, God is love. God is merciful. God is... Long suffering, but what ties that together is his righteousness. See, when I, when I finally realize that God doesn't owe me anything, he's holy, he's perfect, he doesn't have to let me in. I don't have any rights when it comes before God. But yet in his mercy and his love he provided the way, therefore I could enter him because he desires me to be there. That's the reason why we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The holiness of God's judgment and judgment cannot be dismissed. Sin has to be dealt with. Later in verse 6, you see that these angels are clothed or dressed in linen, clean and or as the new living puts it, spotless, good around their chest with golden sashes, like the worship prescribed in the Old Testament. They are dressed appropriately. They model holiness and cleanness with that white and clean, spotless linen. In verse 7, we are told that one of the four living creatures Gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of or filled with the wrath of God. We saw one of these four living creatures. They were talked about back in chapter 4, verse 6. Now each bowl is filled with a distinct manifestation of the wrath of God. Once again, that word wrath is themos. The fury of a righteous God against the contamination of his entire creation through sin. It makes God angry that his creation has been tainted with sin. After all, he created it. He owns it. In verse 7, they say, Who lives forever and ever. That's a present active participle in the Greek. Why is that important to him? This is why. Because it stresses the uninterrupted continuity of God's existence. It underscores the righteousness and justice of God in proceeding with judgment. He is the creator, sustainer, and owner of the universe. His judgment on the forces that have sought to destroy the goodness and kindness of God as manifested in his creation is an inevitable consequence. From day one, God had a plan. He is going to deal with it. And then in verse 8, The temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could go in. It's the kind of glory of God. And it had manifested before at the completion of the tabernacle, the dedication of Solomon's temple. It's not a dense black cloud that's associated with a fire. Rather, it's a luminous cloud which is bright and so obscures everything as to make it impossible for anyone to enter the temple. It was a unique method of signaling the appearance of God that's not part of God, but it kind of functions like a A royal robe, a train of a royal robe, and it comes. And so it's just something that happens when God shows up. Signals the presence of the one who is the Almighty, completely just and worthy of glory. And now we see the stage being set for the seven bowls of wrath. But the thing I want you just really aware of, these angels come right out of the most holy place in the temple Of the tabernacle of testimony. God's full wrath is in those bowls about to be poured out. His unmeditated anger against sin. The holy tension is mounting as God is going to release the final seven plagues. The earth will soon know the power of the Lord God Almighty. And all his glory and power. As the bowls were given to the angels, smoke begins to fill the temple for the glory of God. This powerful presence of God is being experienced just as it was back in Isaiah's day. What happened when God showed up in Isaiah chapter 6? I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and the threshold shook. It was filled with smoke. What was the response of Isaiah? Woe is me. We should sense the presence of God as the glory of God begins to fill this place where his people gather to worship him. The holiness of God speaks to his moral purity and the absolute moral distance between God and man. There is a separation. Myself, on my own effort, I cannot bridge that gap. I cannot do it. How can keep the law? I can't do it. But praise God for Jesus who bridged that gap. As you see him on the cross, one hand reaching toward his father, the other hand reaching toward humanity and pulling them together. We have forgotten that. We just go to God like it's no big deal. And yet, the mighty work of Christ on the cross We have lost the sense of a holy God. We have lost the awe of His aspiring work in Christ. God's holiness and glory certainly go together for both the individual believer and for the church. To us, For us to experience the greater glory of God, we must be practicing holiness. When wickedness replaces holiness, judgment will follow. Do you want to experience the power and the glory of God? Are you tired of going through the same thing time and time again? You you feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. You look around you. The world is falling apart. And you're just crying out, God, I I, I need you. I, I, I need you in a real way. You can't wait for Sunday to do your spiritual exercises. You have to go through the entire week worshiping in your personal time, seeking God, practicing holiness we are to be holy for our God is holy we're perfect but it's what we strive for we are to be different from the world we are to love the way Christ loves us we are to love each other the way Christ loves us we are to forgive each other the way Christ forgives us hmm. and perhaps maybe if we Grab holder to that idea and that principle and put it down in our heart, maybe we'll find ourselves even more grateful for what God has done. I mean, God didn't owe me anything. Yet He still saved me. And now allows me to be a minister of His gospel. He doesn't need me. There's a lot better people qualified than me. I promise you that. He doesn't need any man, really. But that's what he loves to do. You know why he does that? Because we all say the same thing. It's not me, it's him. That way all the glory goes to him. Do you know him? Do you know your creator? The only way you're going to know the creator is through Christ. He's the only one who bridges that gap. You cannot get there on your own. You have to go through Christ, through his blood to enter that holy place. Do you know Him? Have you confessed that yes, you are a sinner? I've broken your law. Have you asked Christ into your life? The Holy Spirit take residence up in in your heart and your soul. If you've done that, then great. But if you haven't, this judgment that we're reading about is coming and it's coming soon. And everything we've read about, talked about, thought about as the Bible says our faith will become our sight how about you and your personal walk with God how is your standing with him don't take your salvation flippantly, or lightheartedly. Yes, it's free, praise God. It's there for anybody who asks, yes. But it took a perfect sacrifice in order to make that happen. Amen. And that was Christ. He was willing to get off the throne to come down and save a creation that he so loved. Can you see him on the cross being nailed? And he tells his father to forgive them. They know what they're doing. And in that moment, I imagine the redemption of the entire world was on his heart at that moment. He was thinking about you, he's thinking about me, and countless others. And even now, he's calling out to humanity come to me. Come to me, and I will give you rest. I will never cast out anyone who comes to me. That's what Jesus says. So I beg you, I implore you, please do not hesitate. Do not put off anything that God's telling you to do today. Because time is running short. Heavenly Father, We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your amazing grace. That you allow someone such as I to enter into your courtroom, into your throne room, We also know that there's a price to be paid for sin. And we thank you for making a way possible for us. You are holy, you are perfect and just and true in all your ways. Continue to reveal to us who you are. Give us the strength, the wisdom, discernment, and the courage to answer in obedience to your call.